Hello, audience. Welcome. I have not been remiss, nor of your desire for additional Kimohawk session shorts, do I intend to dismiss. I have simply been fulfilling other duties of my podcasting post to craft for you full medicinal music to your ears doses of full-blown cocktail episodes of Kimohawk and initiating new engrossing explorations and absorbing adventures. Get it? Full-blown cocktail? Like exploding cocktail? Like Molotov cocktail? Ooh, I am on a roll. I am thrilled to offer you another short fulfilled. Welcome, audience, to Kimohawk Sessions Short number 9. Stub Burn Bridges Burn. Tale of the title. What in the unholy heck do I mean by Stub Burn Bridges Burn? Obviously, I have changed the spelling of the word stubborn. This was not a grammatical oversight on my part. It was clearly literary in intention because Burn Bridges Burn has a much more affecting approach. There is an expression, an idiom, or a proverb, don't burn your bridges, and then in parentheses, behind you. What is passed down over the generations is just, don't burn your bridges, or avoid burning your bridges. I wrote a poem once called, Bridges Better Burned, meaning that sometimes you just have to sever ties with various life forms. But for purposes of this, don't burn your bridges is a proverb that comes from, or meaning, do not act in a manner that causes irreparable harm to your past relationships or connections, as you may need them later in life. That is my fancy falsetto way of explaining stubborn bridges burn. If you are stubborn, audience, if you are stubborn in life, if you are stubborn at work, if you are stubborn in both frolicking affairs and legit shiz affairs, I have found single-handedly that stubbornness, being stubborn, remaining stubborn, will magnetically draw more grief to you than any potential goodness. If you're stubborn, and let's say that you're right, let's say that you're correct, proper, and true in your day-to-day affairs, in your decision-making, in your ability to work or to manage, let's say that everything that you do is correct, and so you're stubborn in how you are. This isn't going to earn you any favors, because people will never truly know if your way is the right way, because it's a hard thing to measure and evaluate. It's actually like trying to evaluate a coworker on a behavioral-based system or to interview a potential candidate on a BBI or behavioral-based interview. It's a big, fat, ugly, gray area. If you're stubborn and you think you're right, or you have strong probability to believe that you are right and you're making right decisions, again, people are not always going to know that it's right. So what they're going to see is you being arrogant or recalcitrant, or they're simply just going to call you stubborn or bullheaded. And this isn't going to work because what it's going to do, possibly unfairly, is paint you in a stubborn shell in the corner of the room. And once you've been identified as being stubborn, one of the go-to synonyms for stubbornness is unreasonable. You're an unreasonable person. This is problematic. At some point along the way, you know when you're identifying yourself in that rear view mirror when you're in the vehicle before you walk into work, or when you're just looking in the mirror after you've touched up your eyelashes or added eyeliner if you're Johnny Depp for that Captain Jack Sparrow role in the Pirates of the Caribbean. But when you look at yourself at some point along the way, you realize if you are a stubborn person or not. Once you identify this feature, you can decide if it's going to be a feature or a bug. I don't particularly like the feature slash bug example, but because we're talking about work and because we like to drop the occasional buzz saw word, it fits. You decide if you're going to be stubborn for important things or if you're just going to be stubborn across the board. The choice is up to you, audience. Along with stubbornness, there is a term I like to use. I invented this term as well. I have my own buzz saw words, remember? (laughs) 
Loyal turmoil. It's what I call loyal turmoil. It's when you feel beholden to a person, place, or thing out of loyalty. Now that loyalty may be well-founded. It may be honorable. But so often does that loyalty become blind, impairing your vision, and it may be for an unworthy recipient. Like your company may not even be worthy of the amount of loyalty that you exercise for them. Example, don't stay miserable at a company. Don't remain in misery out of loyalty because that is loyal turmoil. If you stay at a company for your friends, let's say, I had a conversation once with someone who they were looking to remain in the same industry, but they wanted to switch properties. The other property really wanted them to come and offer all of their delightful personality offerings and their experience. This other property really wanted them for the job, but they were reluctant because at their core, they were a people pleaser. And of course, if you're a people pleaser, this can be misdiagnosed as having loyal turmoil. But I had about a five to 10 minute conversation with this girl. And I said, look, you have been presented an opportunity. Now, if you're going to remain at this property that you manage here out of loyalty for your colleagues because you like working with them or because you feel you owe them some sort of periodic duty that you revisit from time to time, know that if they were afforded the opportunity that you've been afforded, I don't know that they would show that loyalty. I don't know that that loyalty would be reciprocal. Along with stubbornness, sometimes it can have affiliations with loyalty. Don't stay at a company that offers you misery out of loyalty, audience, and don't be stubborn and keep in an open mind to new adventures and new experiences. Loyal turmoil foils. You want to foil that loyal turmoil. And how you do this is you take yourself out of the equation. Think about it not in the simplistic or emotional or subjective blind bat type vision, but see it through the eyes of a hawk. You want to have the vision of a hawk, not the vision of a bat, when you're making decisions that affect your future. There's something, and I've seen it with the recovery, like with addiction, there's a term called contrary action. And in recovery terms, contrary action, the meaning is to take a positive action rather than resorting to habitual, self-destructive behaviors. It is the way to break patterns that keep recovering people stuck in a vicious cycle, or what I like to call sick cycle carousel from that band Lifehouse, and discontent. Doing the opposite of what you have been doing. So for example, quit your F-Stars job if you're miserable. Leave a person if you're miserable. Don't remain chained to the railroad tracks because that train will come eventually. And where do you want to be? Now, I guess if you're a recently escaped convict and you want to drop the chains of your manacles or your shackles onto the railroad tracks to break free, okay, fine. You found a caveat to my railroad example. But for the rest of you, just be very conscientious about what you are paying your allegiance to. Now, it can be bigger than just a single entity. Have pride in your organization or have pride in your country, but don't have too much pride because there is a price to be paid with extreme patriotism. And you can sign up for things. You can sign your life away to the military, for example, for a cause that may prove to be unjust. Just regardless of whatever the mantra is or whatever the organization or institution is that you're wanting to pledge your undying loyalty to or you want to remain stubborn for, know that that bridge can burn if you remain stubborn. Because if you remain stubborn, you may start driving away relationships. I've seen it before with friends. I've seen it with family where you are so stuck in your stubborn burn bridges burn ways that people no longer are able to relate to you. And those few things, like, so you may have a diehard premise belief in, say, five topics. But depending on how diehard you are on your approach to those topics, it can bleed, unfortunately, into other avenues of thought. And then the person can start painting you in that same bleeded blood into other areas that, whether it's fair or not, it can start affecting your friendship as a whole. I have been guilty of being stubborn, remaining stubborn, 
Maybe it's because I'm Irish, and maybe it's because I didn't think it through. But I have found myself, more often than not, regretting times where I was stubborn for reasons that I didn't even know. I didn't even know why I was stubborn at the time. I didn't know what the fuel was that was adding accelerant to it. All I know is that, in retrospect, what I was remaining steadfast in my stubbornness about did not appear to be worth it. Now, this is not to counteract what Abraham Lincoln has said. Stand with anybody who stands right, stay with them while they are right, and then part company with them once they go wrong. There is something to be said about remaining righteous and remaining moral. Almost begs the question to not be too moral or to not be too righteous, because if you're too righteous and too moral, I believe you lose the grip on the common person. And so, like anything, nothing to excess. Now, for you sports fans out there, Lambro, J-Dog, Brother Brooks, Timmy, Taco, even Wham Bam Cam, C. Drew, Adam, all of you, for all of you sports fans, there is no loyalty in sports anymore. I heard the expression once, free agents ruin the God D-Stars game. These players today, they are all about the, the dime, the dollar, the dollar signs. I know, I mean, it's a career. They're professional athletes. There was a time I felt when players would be on a team for 10 years, 15 years. You could build a dynasty around a team and it would be that team for a long time. So as a fan, you could watch that team in action, do what they do in beautiful symmetry. And now, I mean, you're lucky if a player will have a contract that's more than three years and they are constantly being traded. It's difficult to maintain a sense of loyalty to a team when things are so constantly in flux, you can't even remember who's playing and what the teammate to teammate dynamic is. I apply that example for my sports fans, but also to think about it from a kaleidoscope view through the constant changes at your work. There was a time where you would sign up for a career and you would stay until you retired and you had very appetizing reasons to remain. You would get a pension, a full pension, a partial pension. You would get health benefits, benefits for your family, for your kids. You would get that coveted gold watch. Maybe there were additional perks that you were getting that you could only get through that company. Additional days off. I've heard of a lot of people like in the oil and gas industry who after say 15, 20 years with a company, they start coming in, you know, four days a week. And then it's four days a week and every other Friday they get off. Then it's three days a week and then every Friday off. And then really at that point, they're just a overpaid consultants who, you know, you're lucky if they'll be in the office six days a month. There was a time where companies offered valuable commodities and services that would keep you there, that you would stay out of loyalty. And that loyalty made sense. It's what I call like a legitimate loyalty. But today, much like these sports teams in the free agency game, you have far fewer reasons to stay loyal to your employer. The pension is dead. The pension died when I was about two to three years into my former company. They were already killing it. Slowly, it was a slow death, many cuts, but they ultimately cut it and then it was extinguished completely. And so for me, you start losing these reasons to remain loyal. And then depending on your level of dissatisfaction, not satisfaction, obviously, you really have to start figuring out how loyal you want to be. Now, that's not to say that loyalty is a value that should just die out. Of course not. But when I think about true loyalty, I think about my good, my good man Mercutio from Romeo and Juliet. It's funny because we were forced to digest Romeo and Juliet when I was a wee tot. But I didn't even care about the love story, which is the central focus. I don't give a shiz about that. What I did focus my visual efforts on the read was this character, Mercutio. Mercutio, who died defending his friend Romeo. Now, he was a double entendre, sick-minded son of a B-Stars, but he was loyal. And in that loyalty, he ultimately died for it. But that's who he was. That was a character component that could not be removed or distanced from his DNA. So that was a good loyalty. But the loyalty I'm talking about, loyalty to a sports team, loyalty, which is constantly changing, by the way. The teammates are changing. The, the construction or the makeup of the team is constantly changing. When you work for a company that does not value you properly, these are not reasons to remain loyal. Oh, but, but my friends, my friends work there. I've known them for three years. They laugh at my jokes. Okay, you'll find new friends, and those friends may even chortle, not just chuckle, but chortle at your F-Stars jokes. 
think about it. This girl, by the way, that I spoke to and gave her my five to 10 minutes worth of advice on whether she should stay and stay with her friends that she wanted to be loyal to at the first property or travel to the other property, which would make her closer to where she lives. So the commute would be reduced and she would be paid a healthier, handsomer sum. She ultimately, within 24 hours, decided to take my advice and switch to the other company. I was thrilled to discover this. Not only that that's the decision that she made, but Wham Bam Cam's wife educated me on the fact that she ultimately made that decision because of our brief chat. To know that I had a observable impact on another life form, where in the end it will be a good decision for them, that meant a lot. Because I can tell you that not everybody takes my advice. If you were to do a comparison on how much advice I have unleashed and how much of that advice has been put into practice, it wouldn't be a very good batting average to talk about sports again, Timmy Taco. It doesn't matter because every once in a while someone will hear you and it can change the shape of these monumental mountains, so to speak. Now for you sports fans out there talking about a, a losing loyalty and a dampened desire for loyalty towards sports teams, my loyalty in various sports teams because of the constant changes, like for example, the Rockets used to be part of what they call the dream team. And you had all these all-star players, right? Like you had Vernon Maxwell, you had Otis Thorpe, Robert F. Stars Ori, you had Clyde the Glide Drexler. After the Rockets won Clutch City and they won two championships back to back, and I believe 1994, 1995, what did they do? They negotiated a deal to break up the dream team and trade like four or five of the players I just mentioned for one guy, Charles F. Stars Barkley. That never sat well with me and I've never fully recovered from it. I should do another episode on grudge holding. <laughs> but no, that opened my eyes at a young age where I said, wow, they just got rid of all these guys for this one guy because of a deal or a trade or whatever. And in the end, it was a big mistake because look at Robert Ory. That fool would go on to receive five, six, seven championship rings for the three or four or five teams he ultimately played on. Talk about wasted talent. But my loyalty in those types of affairs vanished. Like my initial belief when I started claims handling, that roofing companies scattered throughout Houston and Dallas, Texas were pristine in their moral philosophy, well beyond the scope of any lackluster or defective roofing construction reproach, and rife with scruples with a deep desire to dispel any consumer concerns of fly-by-night illegitimate and serpentine roofing snakes slithering up the ladder and emptying their bladder in the backyard azaleas and crepe myrtles while the unsuspecting homeowner managed their indoor affairs. I started out with this non-belief. It was a blank slate in these contractors that I started encountering every day on roof inspections when I was handling claims. Guess what happened? After about the 100th inspection, when that slimy, skeezy, scuzzy, shady, sketchy, how many other S, S synonyms can I drop? But these serpentine snakes slithering their way up the ladder, slithering their way into the home. I started associating a roofing contractor in Texas with another kind of S, scat, P-O-S, piece of scat, piece, piece of shiz. Now, this isn't fair to those unmet, unmentioned, unnamed contractors that I would meet in the future, but how many times do you burn your F-star's hand? You know what? Hand isn't bold enough. How many times have you flopped your dinghy on the hot stove because you were in the middle of taking a bubble bath and you forgot you left something on the stove? So you sprint over to it, Usain Bolt style, and then whoops. How many times would you let that happen where you burned your dinghy before you realized, I need to avoid hot surfaces. Well, the same thing happened here. I got burned in the field because of these lying, teething, gnawing rat roofers. It really affected me. I had to pull myself out of that stubborn belief that this palpable problem that I had of judging contractors, letting it ruin my joy, ruin my day, it became a real problem in my ability to remain sanguine and incubate optimistic optics. So before I even got to the house after a while, I would be like, well, got to meet with the shizzy contractor. It's going to be terrible. They're going to argue. They're going to want to inflate the claim. They're going to want to try to weasel the deductible out of it. They're going to do one of a hundred things that are all terrible. 
and then I'm going to have to be the professional member of the insurance corporation that always takes the high road and keeps the high ground. Jaded became the cardinal direction that I would orient to. Well, I wasn't confident or strong in character enough to find a way to start seeing contractors as reasonable human beings. So what I did instead was I got out of handling claims. I explained it once to a supervisor. I said, look, every day I wake up, I drive an hour to an hour and a half to a house, and immediately I'm met with a pushy, lying contractor, uneducated, ignorant, and that's just talking about his qualifications, if he's even a real contractor, because a lot of times you would encounter people that were these fly-by-night, P.O. box only, they're from another city or they're from another country, and they're not legitimate at all. But I would be dumbed down by these contractors that were, I, I didn't mind the blue-collar work or the blue-collar nature of the work. And I have utmost respect for people that can perform physical feats well beyond what I can pull off working on a three-story Spanish tile roof in the middle of Houston summer, or people that have the architecture or the design or just the wherewithal to be able to put together a construction project. That's not the issue. The issue is that I felt like I was meeting the wrong contractors and it started creating this poisonous pool that I was waiting in. So I had to get out of it. I had to get out and start working in a different sector of the company so that I wasn't encountering these crooks anymore. But again, it was not fair to the people that were doing honest work. That was a toxin that I was suffering from and blaming people that were not guilty at all. Stubborn burn bridges burn. Stubbornness burns bridges. It affects your relationships with your colleagues, with your coworkers, and for what I was just describing, where you start seeing things that aren't even necessarily there. You're just very inclined to think that they're there because of your own small sample of experiences. So I'm going to tell you a story. It's not my story, but it's a, it's a good one. It's a memorable one. I'm sure you've heard about the World War II Japanese soldier who fought until 1974. He finally died at the age of 91. This is about eight years ago. So there's this article written by Elaine Kurtenbach about this. Hiro with two O's, Onada, only agreed to surrender his position on this island after his ex-commander flew to the jungle to reverse the 29-year-old order to fight on. Is this not insane? He was the last Japanese imperial soldier to emerge from hiding at a jungle in the Philippines that was occupied by Japan and surrender. Talk about indomitable spirit, this article mentions. After World War II, he lived in the jungle for many years. When he finally returned to Japan, the feeling washed over that, okay, the war is finished. He was emaciated. The fatigues had, as you can imagine, seen better days. But he only surrendered when his former commander flew there, in person reversed the orders that were given in 1945, because he was told to hold the islands. And that's exactly what he did. He received a hero's welcomes because people were able to make the connection and realize what he did. You see, the Japanese, they were taught absolute loyalty to the nation, to their emperor. Death was preferable to surrendering. What a code. So he refused to give up after they even had his family come out and beg him to give up his posts. They even dropped leaflets and spoke from loudspeakers, family members, to get him to surrender, and he never did. When asked about it later, after he returned, he said, I don't consider those 30 years a waste of time. This was in an interview with the Associated Press. Without that experience, I wouldn't have had my life today. And then additionally said, he does everything twice as fast, so I can make up for those 30 years. I wish someone could eat and sleep for me, so I can work 24 hours a day. Now, maybe that's a piss poor example, because to me, that's actually kind of a stirring tale of loyalty and stubbornness. But who really knows? I mean, the war was over. Why be there? Why not be with your family? Why not be working in the confines of your own country? But that's one of the best jarring examples I can think of of someone that is committed to their stubbornness and they're committed out of loyalty. My opinion, I think that meets the definition of loyal turmoil. Now, while we're talking Japanese here, there's a character, Colonel Gordon Tall from the great movie A Thin Red Line, played by Nick Nolte. 
And this is a little dialogue. He says, or it's really a soliloquy. He says, John, I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the Japanese position can be broken right now. All we have to do is keep going and we'll have this hill. We'll have this hill by sundown. You see the spirit in these men? Do you see the new spirit? Well, I want to take advantage of that before something happens to sap their strength, to have this battalion relieved in a defeat, or even to have it reinforced by troops from a reserve regiment. If we were stalled before reaching the top, well, Jesus Christ, and that's just a hell of a lot more than I could stand. I've waited all my life for this. I've worked, slaved, eaten untold buckets of shiz to have this opportunity, and I don't intend to give it up now. Possibly reasonable. Possibly the rambling diatribe of a man who is obsessed, possessed, and way too stubborn to be in a position of power. Interesting things to think about. There was a Greek historical figure, the Bias of Preen. He was a lawyer and judge back in ancient Greece. He is included in the list of what they call the Seven Sages due to his influence to the legal system at that time. Now, as you know, a sage is just a fancy word of saying a wise individual, like sagacious advice. We don't have enough information on his personality, unfortunately, but there is rumor that he once wisely said that as a judge, he would rather decide a dispute between two of his enemies than between two of his friends, because no matter what he ruled in the first case, two of his enemies, one of those two enemies would become his friend. But in the second case, one of his two friends would become an enemy. Better a friend than an enemy. You know what you compile a lot of when you are too stubborn, audience? Enemies. Stubbornness in proper doses can be a righteous quality, no doubt. But how often are we excellent judges of the dosage? In fact, the only dosage that you should be concerned about are these doses of chemohawk sessions. I rest my case. <laughs> the Bias Supreme, he had some quotes. These are, I think, really great little nuggets for life in general. He said, too many workers spoil the work. Huh, we know that's true. I saw it at my former company. It's big in insurance. It's big with bureaucracies. If you've got too many hands in the pie, you've got too many, too much DNA in that pie, you are much more likely to get hepatitis C. Heck, you may get every, every hepatitis in the alphabet. Be slow in considering, but resolute in action. Are you going to remain stubborn? Are you going to remain loyal? All I ask is that before you stubborn burn bridges burn, before you burn bridges burn with that stubbornness, you think about it a long time, but once you make your decision, it's good to be resolute, but at the same time, you don't want it to be an ironclad decision that you make. You always want to be able to allow yourself an escape. It's like that guy said in the movie Red Belt, there's always an escape. Chiwetel Ejiofor is his name. I was afraid I was going to mispronounce it. But hey, I'm a wordsmith. I am the guy who says things like Michael Clayton smoothly and resolutely. He also said, by admiring other men's virtues, become enemies to their own vices. That tells me that if you live a truly good life and you set a really gilded example, maybe others will follow. Personal nugget time. Personal nugget. Oh, I had a professor in college, Professor Ware. And when I first saw that man, I passed judgment. He was a large man, about six foot four. He was heavy set. He had a grain beard that was yellow in places that came down to like the third button on his blazer. It looked kind of like a Viking beard, but not well kept at all. It was not a Dave F. Stars Driscoll beard. It was a grandfather of Dave Driscoll beard. But he just looked kind of like a, a slob. I didn't think much of him. Come to find out, as I had, as I would ultimately take several courses of his, man was a brilliant, he was like George Carlin. He had a sense of humor. He knew a lot. He could convey and communicate properly his treasure trove of riches and information. And he was downright hysterical. He had at least two PhDs in criminal theory. He just didn't look the part. In retrospect, I was stubborn in my judgment until I wasn't, and I'm glad that I was able to pull myself out of that. I was wrong. The guy said all kinds of hilarious things. He was talking about how one of his pickup lines in college was, 
Okay, girl, he would say, we already share a couple things. We share chemistry and we share history. And the girl would say, no, we don't. We're not, we're not in history or chemistry courses. He said, oh, well, I just meant that we share chemistry, like there's a natural attraction, and we will hopefully share history one day because you're going to go on a date with me. But this is all going to start because I want you to be my lab partner. We're going to study human anatomy in Braille. <laughs> so here's this guy with a beard recounting some of his stories in college where he dropped the let's study human anatomy in Braille line with a straight F-star's face. It was great. By the way, a little PS procrastinated statement. I came up with some of my own ideas. If you want to pick up a man or a woman, doesn't really matter. You can apply it either way. It's not gender specific. But if you see someone out in the world that you find attractive, and maybe you want to romantically attack them or what have you, if you see somebody smoking a cigarette, well, I probably shouldn't say that because, man, smokers are treated like lepers these days. It's a real problem. People are so stubborn in their hatred for smokers. It is palpable and it is unnecessary. If you are a smoker today, you basically better climb to the roof of that building. Actually, you better get in the helicopter on the helipad of that roof and fly away because people don't want to be within 300 yards of you smoking. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, Falsetto's a smoker. That's why he has such a soft spot in his heart for smokers. And try again. My lungs are in such bad shape for my hospital stay. If I breathed in some soot from a candle, I'd probably fall dead. But what I'm saying is, is that I thought we live in a society of acceptance. I mean, you can accept things like a transgender bathroom. No problem. Don't even bat an eye. But if you see somebody taking a real well-earned puff from their cigarette or cigarello, you might as well just throw them in a lava pit. It's pathetic. All that to say, if you see somebody smoking, as a poor example at this contemporary moment, but if you see somebody holding a pen or anything like that, you walk up to them and you say, hey, can I borrow a cigarette or can I borrow a light or can I borrow that pen? And they'll most likely be like, sure. And they'll give you one of the aforementioned. You know what you do? Maybe not the cigarette because that would ultimately go in their mouth, but you hand them the item right back and you say, thanks. I just wanted an excuse to secure an introduction. Hello, well-meant gent here, or shady lady here, whatever. It, it's it's brilliant, right? It's, it's, it's different. It's unexpected. You kind of disarm them with that initial, hey, can I borrow such and such? You give them an opportunity to feel useful and to help someone that day. I'm telling you, I'm really onto something here. Let me know, audience. Now, I know most of you are probably engaged in a relationship of a serious nature, but if you're not, I want you to give this a shot and let me know. Okay, I have a better nugget. This is all about judgment and stubbornness. When I was working at Starbucks, I had the pleasure of working with this gentleman. We'll call him JK. Now, JK was Korean. I mean, he was from Korea, fairly recently from Korea, and he was adjusting to life in America. He had a large family, wife, probably three kids. I don't remember exactly. I apologize, JK. His English was good. We could communicate effectively, but there was no doubt that he was Korean and he had only been living in America for a handful of years. He was only working at Starbucks for the benefits, of course, because at Starbucks, at least at the time, and I think it's still true. You can work part-time, which means like 20 hours, and be eligible for full benefits with stock options. Woo! Now, but on, in his spare time, he was buying up Quiznos franchises all over Texas. Nicest guy, hardworking, delight to be around. Now, he would make fun of my style, my culture, my persona, and I would make fun of his. Why? Because we were friends, and friends are allowed to do that. I don't know what things are like today. You can't say anything to anybody about anything. Even if you give somebody a compliment, they're likely to misconstrue it. Well, misconstrue this. I would call him all kinds of shiz, and he would call me shiz in return. And then we would laugh and go on about our day. We would firmly rip each other, you know, so he would make fun of things that Irish people do, that German people do. He would make fun of people that looked like me at the time and had a shaved head and had a beard and did what men with shaved heads and beards do, whatever that may be. But in making fun, it, it, obviously I had to call out the fact that, you know, he was Korean and I accused him of being great at math, specifically geometry. 
Now, honestly, I don't know if that's an insult, as it's complimentary in nature. But be that as it may, we were constantly trying to get this guy to come out to play pool with us. There was a pool hall, kind of a stone's throw away down the way, and we were always trying to get him to come out, because we would like to go to the pool, we would like to drink some Long Island iced teas, have a good time. For example, what I would say is, oh, hey, do you want to come play pool? We can have kamikazes. And then he would say, oh, you're funny. That's A kamikaze would be appropriate for like a Japanese person, and I'm Korean. And I would say, oh, I was just, okay, I can't think of a Korean drink off the top of my head. So kamikaze is the best I could come up with. I apologize. And then he would make fun of me, and it was great. Oh, if you recall, audience, this was the same pool hall many, many sessions ago that some colleagues and I were accosted by these three women that we knew. And they clearly wanted to hang out with us all the live long night. So we, one at a time, surreptitiously, slunk and snuck around that back wall and we all jettisoned the premises in that getaway vehicle. And remember what I taught you, Pontians, always keep the engine running and always dive in the car headfirst and flee the scene. It's the same pool hall. Me and my buddy Daniel have been making fun of him for, okay, we're like, okay, we, well, do we even want to play with you? Because you're Korean, uh, you like pool, you're good at pool, you have to be. I see it on TV. And when I see Korean people and Vietnamese people and other people playing pool, I start forming the opinion, like I did with the roofers, that they are good at pool. They like pool. I actually spent a lot of time with some Vietnamese people in my youth, and we would go to pool halls religiously, and they would teach me all kinds of tricks. But the idea was that my boy JK, being probably good at pool, our assumption, and being good at geometry, that's just kind of common knowledge, we were going to be screwed. We were going to have our gooses cooked by this pool shark. He said for weeks, he is very unfamiliar with pool. He doesn't know anything about pool. He might have played it once when he was young, but he has... No time on his hands. He's buying up Quiznos franchises. He's working at Starbucks. He's entertaining our jokes. He's making his own jokes. There's no way that he is going to be a threat. He assured us of this. We get to the pool hall. We have a drink or two. He's just kind of sitting there casually, laughing, having a good time, as he always would. Finally, he's like, well, I'll play if, if you play a little money. But if you don't put any money on it, what's the point? All right, time to play for a little money. I kid you not. He grabs the pool stick. He makes a few gestures and gesticulations pointing to various spots on the pool table, and he's working out math. He's working out geometric shapes and angles. I can see it. He breaks two solids go in two separate pockets on the break. I looked at my friend Daniel. He looked at me. Our eyes got narrow. We looked back at JK. It might have well have been that moment from F-Star's Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Jeffrey, break out Lucille. He might as well have had his own pool stick. This guy was a freaking shark of the pool persuasion. He beat us at every game. I don't think he ever missed a ball. In fact, I think I was just drinking the whole time, watching him sink his own balls as my own sense of accomplishment sank rapidly. So you know what that was? That was me passing judgment that proved to be true. The point here is, audience, if you look at this episode, I'm trying to keep you in the sweet, sticky middle where you can be stubborn, but don't be too stubborn. You can be loyal, but don't be overly loyal to where you're bat blind and not hawk keenness of eye. Just remain temperate. Temperate in all F-Star's things. Unwind the stubborn daily grind. But as the daily grind is stubborn, bridges burn. Does not require you to be stubborn, dear listeners. Stay tuned for your next dose of chemo walk sessions. What is it going to be, audience? Will it be chapter 41, white collar black belt, tear gaslighting, another sin of imposter syndrome? Or will it be Whiskey Wednesdays with Wham Bam Cam, Second Wednesday, Francis Scott Whiskey? Which will emerge first? I will leave that for me to know and for you to linger, breathless and wanting, with anticipation. Wow, this was supposed to be a Chemohawk Sessions short, and it is a Chemohawk Sessions moderate in length. Enjoy, audience. Falsetto out. <laughs>